0: Uh, by the way, that's not like a punk on millennials, there are plenty of people that are in relationship with somebody, uh, and yet, is it really a deep, substantial relationship, or does it just kind of appear that way on social media, are we deeply engaged with one another? So, my name is Dave Sherwood, I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone, we've started a new series uh, as of this week. Uh, called This Is Us, and we're going to be talking about relationships. I would encourage you. This would be a series where we're going to be building kind of week by week by week, so it'd be, it'd be good to not take your skip week this month, but to be here every week so that you get a chance to kind of engage with what we're, what we're building together. With all of that in mind, I want to welcome you uh, here today. If you are a regular, if you're a partner, um, kind of a part of our family here at the church. I'm super excited that you are here today and a part of what we're doing in terms of worshiping and teaching and serving one another. If you are somebody that was dragged here by somebody or if you're somebody that came in because you're trying to figure out the whole God thing and whether it's real or not, I totally understand. I did not believe any of this stuff growing up. And so whether you're dragged here by somebody or whether you come on your own, it's part of your consideration process of whether or not God is real substantial, transformative, or not. I get that. I welcome you to the experience as well. And then third, uh, there are people that from time to time um, ghost God and take a a bit of a vacation for a couple of years. And then they wake up one day and go, huh. Yeah, me being on my own, making my own decisions isn't necessarily a great idea. And so we kind of come back to God, and so I welcome you as well. Uh, whichever place that you're in, and that's only a list of three, I welcome you if you'll pray with me. Whether you believe or not, you can still kind of enter into the experience. Just bow your heads, shut your eyes, and let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus. And we would ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts, Open up our minds. For those of us that are followers of you, God, we've already given you permission to kind of mess around under the hood. And so we're giving you that permission again. And for those of us that don't know you, God, we're just asking that you'd meet us right in the midst of our unbelief and our curiosity and our hope that you're there. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Okay. So what I want you to do, uh, kind of stupid illustration time, Um, what I want you to do is I want everybody in the room to shut your eyes. Everybody shut your eyes. Okay. And what I want you to do is I want you with your eyes shut, I want you to to take your right hand and act like you have a dart. Okay. Act like you have a dart. And uh, someplace in this room, I've hidden a target. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take your uh, dart and I want you to Throw it at the target. Go ahead and throw it now. Ow! Ow! Anyways. Okay. Dumb dumb illustration. Here's what it illustrates. You can't possibly hit a target if you don't see it, right? If I took you blindfolded out into the woods to go deer hunting, and you just are randomly shooting around, you can't get deer that way, at least not consistently. If you drive randomly in Perry County, you can probably get one uh, uh, on on the roads. I, I got taken out, my Jeep got taken out last week, so. But where am I going with all this? Where I'm going with all this is, in life as a general principle, if you don't have a target, you can't hit it. Now, the more exact that target is, the more specific it is, the more you know about that target, this is the distance from me to that target and everything, the more likely you are to hit it. This is all going to make sense when we start to talk about targeting and relationships. And here's what I want to kind of just throw out for you to, to start to think about. How do I navigate all these people in my life? Now, what I mean by that question of how do I navigate all of these people is There's all kinds of people in your life. If we could go to the next slide, please. And so, what I want you to be thinking about is what. Why are they here? I mean, do I do I look at all of these people that are in my life in, in, in these little circles around me as, as people that I get things from, or people that I, I give things to, or people that I ignore, or people that I hate, or people that make me sad? Or you know, what's my definition? What's going on with all of this? Is it random? Might it be intentional? And what do I mean by that? I mean, I mean, is it just that these people are in your life? Is there a target for what that means? Now, we all like to think of ourselves, probably Perry County as much as any place, as strong, independent, rugged, um, take care of ourselves, pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of people. And so there's these poems out there about the solitary tree. So let me tell you about aspen trees. Aspen trees are really interesting trees, and there's some stuff they've discovered about them really in the last 20, 30 years. Aspen trees are technically the largest living organism on the planet. And you're like, what? Because what happens with aspen trees is as they grow, their roots actually connect to one another. In fact, they share nutrients intentionally and strategically. Like if there's a whole grove of aspen trees on a mountain and one side of the mountain is getting all kinds of rain on it and the other side is not, they will release nutrients through the root system from one side of the mountain to the other side of the mountain. Now here's my point. My point is that particularly when you talk about spirituality, when you talk about religion, by and large you think about it for yourself. Me and God. Because me and God exist on an island. We don't have to deal with anybody. No. There's this whole other thing going on. There's Me and God and all of these other people. And this series is all about what does that mean. It says this in James 1.5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So here's what I want you to start to think about as we aim this verse in some very specific directions. What are you asking for wisdom for? Now, we're used to sometimes asking God, I need wisdom about how to handle my finances, or I need wisdom about how to handle my kids, or I I need wisdom about all kinds of things. And we think about this wisdom most of the time just related to ourselves. But here's like a trick question. What if we ask God for wisdom about our core relationships? What do I mean by that? I mean, what if we ask God for wisdom about what do I do with my spouse? What do I do with my kids? What do I do with my boss? What do I do with my friends? And we start to target it in a little bit more of an exact sort of way. Let me define it even more specifically. Asking God for wisdom. God, show me how to be a great dad. Show me how to be a great husband. God, show me How to be a great employee. What does your word say, God, as well as what conviction can you bring to me to show me how to live in the fullness and the richness of what you intend for this relationship? Now, the more we keep it vague, how how are you doing as a dad? Well, you know, I haven't killed him. And you can't beat him anymore. So I'm good. Is that really what you want to operate with? Let's just make an assumption. Let's make an assumption that God designed marriage, God designed husband, wife, kid, designed all of these things. And when he designed it, he like says from Genesis to Revelation a whole, whole bunch of things about being a great, for example, husband. And the more I compile all of that and look at all of that and integrate all of that and then release all of that, the better my marriage is going to be, the better that relationship is going to be. Again, I could do that about all kinds of different roles. And all of a sudden, the possibilities I'm actually bringing to life, I'm actually activating what God intended. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And it says two things. God wants to be generous. And he's going to do it without reproach. He's not going to say like, oh, it's about time. I mean, you've been crashing and burning a husband long enough. That's not God's approach. He wants to be generous. He wants to help you. God's basically saying, help me, help you. Help me, help you. Are we doing that is the first open question. The opposite of this person that's asking for intentional wisdom is somebody that we hear about in Psalm 10.4. It says this, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, and his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, here's what this person is like, because I've been this person. This person's like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm doing my thing on my own terms. Everything's good. Job's like, okay. You know, marriage is like, okay. I can, I can, you know, I can, I can, I can figure this all out on my own. I really don't need you, God. Now, I want you to notice the massive difference between this wisdom person and this wicked person. This wisdom person is standing before God saying, God, tell me, pour into me, show me how to be a, a great employee, a great husband, a great child, a great whatever. And all of a sudden, God can utilize this person to manifest his will, to activate, to turn on all the cool stuff that God wants to do in the world in terms of healing and hope and everything else. That's what's going on with this person that's asking for wisdom. Here's this other person, this wicked person, who's like, I don't need me no Jesus. I don't need me no God. It's it's not just that they're probably in some ways kind of against what God wants to do. It's that they can't be activated for the intention of all the things that God wants to do. Their life just has no legacy, no deep impact, at least not on the level that God wants to have. And you might go, well, you know what? I ask God. I'm the wisdom person. I'm not the wicked person. Well, here's the deal. If you're a church person long enough, you're probably not the wicked person in terms of, like, I don't believe in God. You're potentially the practical atheist. What does that look like? It looks like you have no idea what God's Word says about being a husband or a wife. You have no idea what it looks like, what God's Word says about being a, a good employee or about being a good child or about being all sorts of things. You're not activating and and engaging in this transformational thing that God wants to do. It's all vague. It was this way for me at one point in time. I, I stepped into being a husband, and I'm like, hey, I, how, how do I how do I how do I how do I do this? I'm like, you know, if I if I do just better than my dad, because my dad was. He had an affair, he, was, he kind of failed as a husband. Sometimes I do better than my dad, I mean, that's, that's awesome, that's great. That was my only definition. I never even thought as a new believer about sitting down and going, God, show me how to be a great husband. So you end up with these two people. You've got this one person who's basically saying, God, help. And you've got this other person that's just saying, nope. Which one are you? And again, this is how you know. If you can sit down and say, These are all the things that I'm doing specifically to be a great employee, to be a great child, to be a great brother or sister, to be a great husband. The core roles in my life, I know exactly what scriptures targeting is, and I've asked God for wisdom about how to do things well. If that's happening, you're probably in that yes camp. If you have no idea, you're probably in the nope camp. Most of us are probably someplace in between. And what I'm trying to do in this series is push us more towards this help. Now, you can't write down necessarily 500 roles, but you can come up with four or five of the critical, crucial roles of life so that you're in the in the most dynamic, influential components of life, you're living intentionally. You're living on purpose, because God someday is going to do something. And it's so funny how, as an outsider to Christianity, I would hear terms like judgment, and I'd be like, "Oh, church and judgment, and there's a judgment seat, and blah." blah. And you read all this scripture and you realize it's not just about condemnation. I mean, the judgment seat is also where God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So here becomes the question. Do I want to hear in some of the core roles of my life that God says, well done? Absolutely I do. Why? Because it's cool to hear well done, but also because I want to be a part of what God wants to do in restoring and redeeming all of life. I also don't want to hear, didn't do anything. Help or nope. may move forward into 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. So scripture, if you're in church long enough, you hear. But I want you to hear it maybe a little bit differently. It says this. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable. It, 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 when it goes in, it doubles down. It makes money. It's profitable for teaching and for for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so you look at something like this and you're like, oh, it's saying that the Word of God coming into me is profitable. That's not what it's saying. I want you to look very carefully at it. What it's saying is it's inspired. The Word of God comes into you, but it goes out into others and it teaches them, and it corrects them, and it reproofs them, and it trains them. That's what its job is. So that this third party becomes complete and becomes equipped. So what Paul is saying to somebody like Timothy is he's saying, all this scripture stuff, it needs to come into you, and then it needs to go out in some, some ways, like teaching and correction, reproofing and training, so that other people, these third parties, Reach completion, reach maturity, reach flourishing. And so that they're equipped. Basically, the idea is that it's not just me and God on an island. That me studying the scriptures, me praying, me worshiping, me doing all sorts of things. The word of God is is God's wind, his breath. And it's true and it comes in. And when it comes in, it transforms me. And then I am a missionary, I'm missional. And I go and I utilize God's word in how it affects other people and some of it's like a really formalized thing like discipleship sometimes it's a real formalized thing like raising your kids sometimes it's a really informal thing and it's just that the word of God is constantly informing how you do things and why you do things and it's affecting other people and so I don't know about you I mean I first became a Christian I became a fundamentalist and so it was, well, you know what, There's, you, uh, you can't be unequally yoked, and you know, light has nothing to do with darkness. And so basically what you need to do is if the church doors are open, you just need to be here 24-7, and you just need to read, read the Word of God. And what happened to me is I'm reading all this God stuff and everything else, and I'm not salt and light with any of those dark people out in the world, and I, I'm, I'm, I miss the whole thing. And I clip along a couple of years later and I start to realize what God wants to do is he wants to come into my life, change, heal, redeem, teach, wisdom, joy, all this cool stuff. And as it's building up, he wants it to flow out every place, my neighbors, my friends, my family. And it wants to flow out in some specific ways. How do I affect my children? How do I affect my neighbor? How do I affect my boss? How do I affect, do I know what God's word says about these things? In Proverbs 12, 18, it says this, For there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's a little proverb part, but it basically says this. Is that there are some people, when they open their mouth, it's like they're stabbing people. Any of you ever been stabbed? I don't need to raise your hands. You ever been stabbed verbally by somebody? But there's this other person, the tongue of the wise brings healing. What does this look like in the real world? Well, if you've come to this church for any amount of time, you know that my my parents were not believers. And so um, I had a rough relationship with both of my parents, my dad especially, and when I was probably, I don't know, eight, nine years old, my dad asked me to rake the backyard, and I raked the backyard, and at the end of it, he said something basically about how, how lazy and stupid I was. And I remember it to this day. I, I remember exactly where I was standing and exactly how I felt now, all these years later, I, I know that my dad was trying to motivate me and teach me self-discipline and all this other stuff. He just didn't know me real well, and it was a sword thrust. Now, I remember another story. It'll, it'll sound weird at first. I remember I, I played soccer for this little German um, select team in Buffalo, New York. There's this little German club, an Italian club, and... Uh, and we would play each other, and I was a pretty good soccer player, so I kind of got drafted into this club, and it was great to be part of the German club because you could be 12 years old, and after you played the game, if you won, they give you a beer, and you're like, wow, this is the greatest thing in the world. It's the sort of thing that would be a big no-no these days, and I wouldn't recommend it. But it was, it was a thing that I did. And so what happens is we're having this game, and there's going to be the, the break in between things, and what happens in the break in between things is my team is losing. And all of us have to get talked to by our coach in our kind of little halftime. And my coach was a guy named Eric Munchu. He was German, real German, from Germany. And um, you haven't lived till you've gotten swore at by somebody in German. It was just harsh and fierce. If we did poorly in the game at the next practice, he'd make us hold ourselves to the, to, the, to the goal post at the top while he would fire fireballs at us. He's tough. Old school. So we're losing this game two to nothing. And we're all filing into the locker room to get yelled at by Eric Bunchu. And I walk in uh, the locker room and I remember him being there and I was like over here and he took me and he slammed me against the wall. And everybody else filed by. And I'm freaked out. And what happens is, everybody gets in there, and he goes off on everybody. And when he's done kind of going off on everybody, he says this. He says, except for him. He's still fighting. He's still at war. He's still, and he just says all these super encouraging things to me, because I thought I was going to be killed and buried in the back of the locker room. And to this day, again, I remember exactly where I stood and exactly what he said and its effect on me at the time. At the end of his little tirade on everybody, he said, I don't need any of you. I'll just take him and we'll go out and we'll play the rest of the game and you're all useless. And so we, we, we left and they all sat in the locker room for a couple of minutes going, I don't know what to do. And they finally filed back out. And he actually let them play, which is, is nice because I, I would have gotten shelled in the, <laughs> in the goal. Here's where things get tricky, relationship-wise. Is your mouth a sword? Is your mouth healing? Make it even a little bit more tricky. Sometimes you, get to, you don't get to decide whether it is or isn't. Let me give you an example. My, my wife. My wife is like a preacher's kid, okay? Missionary kid, straight A student, firstborn, okay? She's like, you know, preacher's kid, you know how like in Footloose, like the, the, she goes wild? My wife's not that one. She's like the straight Lace, straight A's, whole nine yards. I'm the baby of the family, Which means I got blamed for things before I could even defend myself verbally. And I got chased by cops. I was a train wreck. Okay? Grades. But here's my point. I'm going somewhere with all of this. When Amy and I were married, we would have fights from time to time. And in my family, our fights were loud, big, strong, full of inappropriate words. So when I want to engage Amy, this is my normal voice. It's a five. If we're in the middle of a fight, you know, to emphasize something, I would advance it to, I think, a six. So I'd go from this voice to this voice, and I thought, that's fine, that's restrained, that's a six. It's not like I'm screaming! Just to give you some context. But for Amy, firstborn, straight A's, Never got into trouble. Never had anybody raise their voice to her. I thought I was demonstrating self-control and being reasonable by upping my volume one notch. For her, it was crushing and debilitating, and she didn't know what to do with it. Here's where I'm going. Relationships are tricky because you need to get lots of feedback from other people about what you're doing, what your effect is. So it's not just a question of me being like a husband. The question is, what is the effect of my being a husband? You can go ahead and go to the next slide. It's basically, hey, am I getting this wisdom from God, and am I affecting this other person? And they're like, wow, it's amazing to be married to you. It's, it's great to have you as my dad. It's, it's, it's great to have you as my neighbor. Is, is that what's happening or not? And I, I might need to ask people. Might have to ask my kids, how's dad doing? Might have to ask my wife, how am I doing? We work on things every now and then. So I could go to Amy and I could say, Amy, what's, what's one thing that you want me to work on? And of course, Amy's learned to be sarcastic because she's been in my family for long enough. She's like, one thing. <laughs> yes, my love, the, the Excel spreadsheet on your computer. I, I'd like you to just take the, the top priority. <laughs> And then what I do is I try to integrate that into my life, that one thing that she's asking me to work on, and I may do that for like three months, and she can hold me accountable about that. And we've discussed that, and we've negotiated that, and we've communicated that. That's real. Not to mention what I may hear from God about how to engage her. Because I have to answer to God, for this is God's daughter. Now, I'm not talking just about husbands and wives. I'm talking about all core relationships. Are we functioning in wisdom? Are we getting feedback? Are we producing fruit? Are people flourishing because of what we're saying? Or are we, I don't need you, God, and I have no idea what your word says, and I just say what I say, and damn the consequences. Which one are you? In Ephesians 5.25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, it says in Colossians 3.19, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I'm just messing with husbands right now, but everybody in the room can squirm because what I want you to start to do is I want you to start to think about, do you have a definition of whatever role you have? Let's take this one. Husbands, love your wives. Great. So far, so good. I'll throw some chocolate at her every now and then, and um, some flowers, and we're good, right? I'll take her out to dinner. No, there starts to be some definition. Okay, what's the definition? Because that's the definition of the world, right? As Christ loved the church mm, and gave himself up for her. What? He sacrificed his life for the church. Am I sacrificing anything for my wife? My hobbies, my money, my brain space, my attitude, the chores of the house, you name it. Am I a sacrificial, Christ like husband? Or am I just following the cliche of the world's definition of a decent husband? Do I know and and can I kind of identify, list out exactly what Christ says a great husband, a godly husband looks like, and am I activating and integrating that into my life, or am I an autopilot? One other verse, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So there's another thing we've added to it, not just a sacrificial approach to your spouse, but the second thing that we've added to it is don't be harsh with them. I told you, I'm like, you know, baby of the family and non-Christian and I was in trouble all the time and I just, my comfort level with being yelled at and yelling back is actually pretty high. I just don't flip out about that sort of thing. But my wife is a very different person than me experientially and it's not just because she's female, it's that she's lived life experientially different than I have. So guess who gets to decide the definition of harsh? Her, by her feedback to me. And so then I've got to be able to identify, do I know how to love as Christ loves? Am I loving sacrificially? Do I understand the constraints of harshness as she would define them? And that's just starting the targeting. Basically, the question that jumps out is something like this. What are my complete instructions about how to engage this person? That's what I'm asking you to start to think about as you walk out today and this whole next month. Do I have instructions about how to engage this person? Do I know what to do and what not to do and how to do it? why would this matter? Well, for a lot of reasons. One, it's going to bring them to life, and two, it's going to, it's going to make God happy, and three, it kind of, kind of creates this thing that we've talked about, the kingdom of God, and it being missional and everything else. It brings me some peace to know that I'm doing a good job, and it makes a model for my family and for others. And wouldn't it be great if Jesus were to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Plus, if I know his wisdom and I know his word you know, there's, there's going to be a whole bunch of things that I need to do, but, but I don't need to do everything. I don't have to become a crazy helicopter parent to my kids, nor do I, am I just sort of an absentee latch kid parent to my kids. I, I just know what God wants me to do, and there's it's a great feeling of knowing what you're supposed to do. It's a terrible feeling. You, you get a job and you've got no job description. You have no idea whether you're going to be fired or get in trouble because you just don't know what's going on. But if you know what's going on and you're operating in what's going on and you're getting trained in what's going on, you, you get confident, you flourish. It's great. It's great. So we're starting to build our complete instructions. And then it says this in Galatians 6.2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Ephesians 5.21, it says, submit to one another. Galatians 6.2 part, bear one another's burdens. What does that mean? It means that in any given relationship, I understand the burden that that person is carrying. What do you mean? Well, I mean my boss has a burden. My, my boss is afraid of getting fired for different things. My, my boss acts the way that they act. for. Do I know anything about my boss? Am I praying for my boss? Am I a, a good employee? Am I an encouraging, am I a gossiping, slandering employee? Do I, do I understand the burden of what my boss is going through? But then let's switch it over to something like my kids. Do I know how the pressure of grades or their social status, do I know how that's hitting them? Or my spouse... Do I know what they're sad about, what they're angry about, what they're frustrated about? See, we have a tendency to discover burdens in the midst of a war. You never buy me flowers, and you always are throwing your stuff everywhere, and you're failing at this, and And that's the way we share burdens. And it's usually a long list, and all all the other person does is they either get hurt or they get defensive about all of that stuff. But what's it like to sit down with our core relationship and say, What is the burden that you're carrying? It was weird for Amy and I, when I was in my mid-twenties, because I've suffered from um, chronic depression most of my life, for her to ask me, what does it mean, honey, for me to step into the burden of depression that you're carrying? And I was like, I I have no idea. I mean, I'm learning how to do some of my self-care. I'm learning how to engage God, but I've never really thought about anybody else carrying this with me. And so then we, we tried things, we experimented with things. And so she found out that, you know, going to a movie and getting out of town and, and sitting there and making me say the crazy stuff that was in my head out loud and all this stuff, there were all kinds of things that she could do to bear the burden with me. Are we bearing the burden of those around us in our core relationships because we've built so much trust that we can share those things honestly, not in a war, not in a fight, but authentically, naturally, consistently. And then it says submit to one another. And what does that mean? It means that we bend the knee to one another's needs. And so I get to go to my wife and I get to say, honey, where do I need to submit to you? I'd like you to wash the dishes. I'd like you to this, that, and the other thing. That's great. I submit to her. Now, if she gives me a list of 70 things, we may have to negotiate. But do you know the other person's burdens? And are you submitting? And again, it, I want to kill the vague. That's why I want everybody to squirm. You should walk out of here today going, I need to have a conversation with my spouse or my kids or whatever, and start to go, what is my role? And am I fulfilling that role? And am I... Bearing their burdens and am I submitting to them and all of these other things? Because this is what God is trying to pull off. So sharing your needs and submitting yourself to their needs. And all that being very real. Not a vague concept. This would be the way I would kind of finalize things. Ask God your role. Ask God, give me wisdom, show me scripture about my core roles. We've already listed a whole bunch of potentially what those roles are. Secondly, share mutual needs. And you're like, well, how are we going to have this? You know what, you just, you just try to have that conversation the first time. What about with my, my, my boss? That's just weird for my boss. You don't need to necessarily do that with your boss, and your kids may not. But you're looking, you're asking, you're trying to intuit, you're trying to figure out. The point isn't getting it perfect, but it's trying to understand and thinking and looking differently. And then covenant expectations. So with Amy and I, we can both have a conversation about our covenant, our, our formalized relationship, about what she can expect from me and about what I can expect from her. The other thing that we do within that is the submission thing and accountability so she can hold me accountable. I thought you said that you were going to do this. You're right, I did say that I was going to do that. I apologize, I'm wrong. I will do that. Accountability, practical, real sort of ways. And then number five, flourish in God's design. Because here's the big question that you've got to ask. When I was a non-Christian, I thought God's up there and there's the Bible and all this stuff. He's trying to trap everybody and make everything boo-hoo, blah, blah, blah. Everything sucks. That's what I really honestly thought. I, it never dawned on me that God was looking down and going, hey, here's humanity and they've really run amok and they're tearing each other to shreds and I want to show them what my intention was when I started this thing. I want to rebuild things. I want to bring things back to life. I want to create hope and I want to create meaning and identity and everything else and taking in God's word and reorienting and reengaging all of my life and then doing that into those around me and all of a sudden... They're flourishing. They're coming to life. They're being equipped. They're coming into completion. And that's what God wants for us. We go back to the beginning. We can be the person in wisdom asking God for help. Or we can be the person saying, nah, I got this. Candidly, we can be right in the middle. and be a practical atheist and say, I have no idea really what I'm doing. I've never defined it. It's never been accountable. It's never been a covenant. I'm encouraging you to flip the script and to go a new place this next week. Let me pray. Father God, we have a tendency to to be glad that you're there and we're glad that we sometimes have feelings of connection to you, Father. Um, But Father, we let a lot of our life be pretty vague. We don't really know where we stand, how we're doing as a, a husband or as a wife or as an employee or as a a brother or a sister or a child or all sorts of things. We, j- we don't know how we're doing because we've never, we've never asked you. So, Father, start to show us. Show us in your word. Show us in wisdom. Show us who we are and what we're supposed to be doing that we might come fully alive and we might bring those around us fully alive through your power and your presence. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen.